Well, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to actually read uh, a little bit broader passage here. Um, verses 19 through 21 is the sermon passage. I'll read a little bit more just to give us some context to that. The message is titled, Openness to the Work of the Spirit. And so um, those who have been with us know we're going through this series on the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Ten messages uh, all told, interrupted a couple of times by uh, a trip to Africa as, as well as maybe some other things. But anyway, so we, um, we're sort of on the downhill. These last four messages uh, on the Holy Spirit today with the subject of the openness to the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, if you're just joining us you and, and it would be of interest to you, you can go back and find those uh, messages online. But, um, you know, it is, uh, for those who are visiting, uh, part of who we are is we're a Spirit-filled church. We believe that the Holy Spirit still operates in the 21st century the way He did in the 1st century. Um, of course, uh, according to His sovereign will to do so, uh, when and where and how um, He operates is, is His choice. But we still believe um, that, that He works in, in all of those ways. And so we're really uh, unpacking that even in, ten, in a 10-message uh, series, it's still fairly short. <laughs> uh, you have to be pretty concise about um, any one of those topics, but we're, we're wanting to get uh, a broad enough view to see that uh, about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. And it's, it's more than just the um, signs and wonders and um, emotions and goosebumps, as, as we say. Um, it's, it's much more far-reaching than that. And that's some of what we've been trying to uncover. And again, if that's of interest, you could go back and uh, consult some of those series uh, in past weeks. But this message is about openness to the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm actually going to read verses 14 through 22. The sermon uh, really comes from 19 through 21. Um, those words will be on the screen, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and attentiveness to His voice. Beginning in verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you today as always for your true and living word. That when we open the scriptures, we do so with the expectation that you have something to say to us in them. That you, Lord, 
make them live to us and penetrate to the very core of our being. Reveal things about yourself, about ourselves, and about our Savior. So God, we open our hearts and our ears to receive what you have for us today as your people. So we ask you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to speak to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, when it comes to gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, we're prone to fall into one of two errors. This, is, this tends to be where people, where churches gravitate. We tend to gravitate to extremes anyway, uh, or to the sort of the end of, uh, one con- end of a continuum or another. But we're, we're prone to fall into one of two errors as it relates to gifts and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the power ministry of the Holy Spirit. One is to have an overly permissive attitude. And anything goes sort of approach. If somebody claims they were led by the Holy Spirit, well, it must be true. It's just kind of granted, uh, assumed that that's true. They have a word from the Lord. They say it's just assumed that that's true. And um, especially if it's spontaneous or emotional or if it sort of deviates from the norm in some way. If it breaks with the normal order of things, surely that must be the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek and, uh, and, and maybe overstating the issue a little bit in order to make a point. But the point is um, that there are one error that people are inclined to is just to sort of take that approach and go, well, if that's, they'd say that's from the Holy Spirit, it must be in sort of anything goes, that there's no limits, no boundaries to that. And this seems to have been the struggle of the Corinthian church. We're actually turned there starting next week. The last three messages will come out of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so I won't say a whole lot about that right now, but they, they, they seem to be um, a little too permissive, and actually it began to create problems. They wrote to Paul about that, and he's addressing uh, some of what concerned them in that regard. So one error is an overly permissive attitude. The other error is an overly restrictive attitude. If in one, in one case anything goes, in the other case nothing goes. They shut it down. Because for whatever reason... The exercise of prophecy, as it's mentioned here in the passage, or other spiritual gifts, it may seem too disruptive, it's too risky, it's too messy, it's just too much trouble. There are so many ways it can go bad, there are so many just stupid things people can say and do, you just go, it's not worth it, (laughs) just turn it off, shut it down, let's just avoid the problem altogether. And again, perhaps some of us can appreciate why people might be prone to fall into that error. Because they've seen life lived at the other end of the spectrum, right? They've heard 
some of the nonsense. They've seen some of the just wreckage caused. And so they go, ah, just turn it off. This may have been the tendency of the Thessalonians. That requires a little bit of inference from the text. But here they are told, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. And this written to what seems to be a pretty grounded and mature church. One of the reasons I wanted to read the, more of that passage, I actually could have backed up uh, to verse 12. Because this is just final instructions in this letter um, in, in, a, in pretty broad ways of things that, they, uh, that, that they're encouraged or exhorted to do. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, see that nobody repays evil for evil. Uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, do not quench the Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, in the the context of of the larger sort of set of instructions. This is one of the things that Paul needed to say to the Thessalonians in particular. But a a mature church, no doubt, in 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes to them a follow-up letter, He says this about them in verses, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. They have a a growing and abundant faith. They have an increasing love for each other, and they are persevering through trials. And it says, we boast about you to other churches. You're a model church. They're a mature and grounded church, it would seem, um, but one of the things they need to be told is not to quench the Spirit. I think this is actually quite instructive, and I'll preview uh, 1 Corinthians for you to say, Corinth was not a model church. There's lots that people um, in the Spirit-filled community like to look the the letter to the Corinthians about because of all that it says about spiritual gifts. They were a wreck. Uh, they, they They were so messed, thoroughly messed up in so many ways. And so they had to be told to sort of tighten it up a little bit. (laughs) The Thessalonians, a very grounded and mature church, had to be told, loosen it up a little bit. But they're told here, do not quench the spirit. The word quench uh, refers to the extinguishing of a fire. Um, I think, in, in fact, most translations render it that way, do not quench the Spirit. I think there may be one that says, do not stifle the Spirit, and there may be some others as well. But it, this word was used most often to refer to the extinguishing of a fire. Don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're being told. Well, how do you extinguish a fire? For some of you, it's probably just try to burn it. And that extinguishes it, right? Like you have the gift of putting out a fire. 
Now, how do, you, how do you put out a fire, really? You douse it with water, right? That's one way, and that would be uh, the most sort of immediate connotation of the word being used here. You pour water on it. You could also dump dirt or ashes on it. Maybe you've done that at a campfire or something, a fire pit in the backyard. You know, just smother it, essentially, with water or with Dirt or ashes or something. That's if, you, if you're trying to put the fire out, you smother it. You can also extinguish a fire just by neglecting it, right? Uh, if you just leave it untended, eventually it goes out. Just neglect. If you deprive it of any fuel, you can actually also smother it by putting too much wood on it. Again, some of you have, have tried that. And I think about um, looking at Hugh having worked with scouts. Hugh probably knows about uh, the mobs of people trying to help with the fire. <laughs> Throw enough wood on the top of it. It'll smother the fire. Actually, with the best of intentions, trying to burn the fire, but actually smother it with too much wood. There are at least those ways that you can extinguish the fire. And I think those are helpful uh, pictures for us to attach to this instruction here that Paul gives to Thessalonians because it doesn't really get um, a lot of explanation here in the immediate context of this verse. But what we know from other places that we'll consult here this morning throughout the uh, New Testament is there are ways that we can quench the Holy Spirit that, that in order to really um, see the Holy Spirit uh, operate in our church and our lives as believers, we need to have an openness to that work. That's really kind of the bottom line of the message this morning, that we need to have an openness to the Holy Spirit if we expect to see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, that has to be qualified always because the, the, the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants to do, right? He can act without our cooperation. He can do that. If you think he, God needs your permission, if you've ever been taught that, uh, just scratch that out of your theology notes. But ordinarily, the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives, uh, after we are born again and become believers, ordinarily the way He works is with our cooperation. That is, He works and we work. There is something we're supposed to do. It's true about our sanctification, as we say, as He makes us more holy, as He separates us from our sin. We have a responsibility to put our sin to death. By the Holy Spirit, it says. He's working and we're working. And in a variety of ways, He works as we cooperate with Him. So in order to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we need to remain open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that namely means not quenching the Holy Spirit. Don't extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit as it were. So I want to look at five ways 
that we quench the Holy Spirit so that these are things we're not supposed to do. In case you're only paying a little bit of attention or you're only half awake, these are things not to do uh, that would quench the Holy Spirit. Number one, we quench the Holy Spirit by forbidding or shutting down the exercise of certain spiritual gifts. And that's what's kind of immediately in view right here in this passage. The fundamental issue we see in verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Now again, I can appreciate, maybe some of you can too, why the Thessalonians might be inclined to despise prophecies. Because surely in their day, like in ours, so many people had said such absurd things and called it a prophecy from the Lord. There was, you read the New Testament, you see there's false teaching that's just rampant. It's one of the things they're contending with right away. It's, it's, it's one of the primary things um, that, that Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to deal with. You've got elders even teaching false doctrine. He says, Timothy, stay there and deal with this. And see, it would be easier to say, just shut it down, wouldn't it? It's, it's just too problematic. Just shut it down. But Paul tells him, do, do not despise prophecies. But test everything. One of my hopes in, uh, out of this series uh, is, number one, that, that we as the people of God would be encouraged to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to the gifts of the Spirit and to exercise and employ the gifts of the Spirit, but that more than ever, perhaps, we would test the work of the Holy Spirit or the alleged work of the Holy Spirit, that we would have the people of God in the congregation who feel empowered to say, I don't think that lines up with the Word of God. Well, I, I, hold on, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but we test everything and hold fast to what is good. That implies some of it's not good. Doesn't, doesn't it? But see, there's nothing particularly threatening about that. There's, there's not, it's not uh, test everything and send the offenders to the gallows, you know, or whatever. It's, it's test everything, hold fast to what is good. So they're not to, not to shut down the exercise of prophecy there in Thessalonica. 1 Corinthians 14.39, where we'll be in a couple of weeks, says something similar about the gift of tongues. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Um, now there's a, that's the end of a long chapter and there's a whole lot of context to that. He, he really puts um, some real limits on the exercise of the gift of tongues, but he says do so without forbidding. Speaking in tongues. And so one of the ways we can quench the Holy Spirit is just forbidding or shutting down certain spiritual gifts. And we don't want to do that. But we do want them to be exercised in a way that's consistent 
with Scripture so that we test everything and hold fast to what is good. The second way we quench the Spirit is neglecting spiritual gifts that He gives us. As I said, one of the ways you can put a fire out is just to douse it, right? Just smother it. Bucket of water, shovels full of sand or whatever. That would be like forbidding uh, certain gifts from being exercised at all. Just douse it. You see a little flicker of a flame. Oh, that's dangerous. Better put that sucker out. Okay, but then there's a number of ways in which neglect can quench the Holy Spirit. And one would be neglecting the spiritual gifts he's given us. First, uh, it's interesting, Paul gives some sort of exhortation to Timothy in both of the letters that he writes him. In 1 Timothy 4.14, he says... Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders of the presbytery laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift that you have. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so, you know, at his uh, ordination or installation or something of that sort, and there's hands laid on him by Paul and by other elders, he receives a gift, which is unnamed here. And that's not really important for us to know. What's important for us to know is that he's told, don't neglect it. Fan it into flame. He uses this same metaphor of fire. Fan it into flame, the gifts you had. So it's not only don't let them sit idle, but fan it it into flame. Whatever um, God has given you, he's intended for it to be used. Uh, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What he's given, he intends for us to use to serve others. So don't neglect the spiritual gifts he's given you. Part of that endeavor is discovering that in the first place it is um, opening ourselves to receive gifts, opening ourselves to exercising those gifts, and being content with, rejoicing in whatever gifts it is he's chosen to give us. Now, we're go- we'll get into spiritual gifts uh, more next week. But uh, part of our problem is we neglect the spiritual gifts he's given us because we want the spiritual gifts he's given somebody else. We're longing for some other gift other than the ones he's given us. And uh, we set off in the wrong direction right to start with. So don't neglect the spiritual gifts he's given you. Number three, the third way that we quench the Holy Spirit is not seeking and praying for His presence and work. We can quench the Holy Spirit by just not seeking, asking for His presence and His work in our lives. You know, there, there are people who sort of take a, a, a sort of a theological position that they'll say, uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't say that 
some of the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. They wouldn't necessarily take that position. They'd stop short of that. But they'd say, I believe that uh, all of those are still in operation. I just hope they don't show up in our church. Because it's kind of messy. You know, so it's like open, but just technically. And don't really seek or pray for his presence and work. Luke 11, 9-13 is a, would be a prayer passage we'd be familiar with where he says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead, uh, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is just to point out, from the mouth of Jesus... That we're encouraged to ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. And this, uh, in, in at least one of these accounts that Luke tells us about, where he says, ask, seek, and knock, he specifically applies that to asking the Father for the Holy Spirit. We ought to ask. We ought to ask. We ought not to take um, the, a, a sort of passive uh, position, an attitude that, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will do, if he wants to do something, he'll do it, and uh, I'll just kind of sit and wait for that to happen. We're, we're not empowered in, or affirmed in taking that position. We ought to seek and ask. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, which again, we'll circle back around to week after next, but it says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And again, I can relate to those who have seen enough messes and nonsense to want to go through a season of just reprieve from all of that and want to go, you know what, let's just, uh, just kind of turn it off for a while. But 1 Corinthians 14.1 doesn't let us sit comfortably there because it says earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We ought to ask, we ought to seek, we ought to pray. And one of the ways we can quench the Holy Spirit is uh, uh, the neglect of not asking and seeking. Number four, we can quench the Holy Spirit by substituting people, programs, and other resources for the Holy Spirit. That those things that the Holy Spirit is supposed to empower about ministry, about the work of the church, the work of the gospel, and whatever it is, we can substitute for that people and programs and other resources. This would be, by analogy, one of those things like um, adding too, throwing too much wood on the fire and smothering it. Sometimes this is done with the best of intentions, wanting good things to result um, for the church, for individual people. But we can develop confidence 
in a person's leadership, their creativity, their wisdom or discernment. We can begin to lean on uh, them instead of ourselves looking to the Holy Spirit for guidance, for our own discernment and so forth. Um, we can look at people and go, well, they seem to operate with God's favor and blessing. Let's do what he says. Or their work of ministry appears to be successful, so let's just copy them. And you can begin to substitute people for the Holy Spirit. The same thing can happen with programs, right, that have been successful in the past and are meeting with success in other places, even presently. That seems to be working. Let's do that. And, and it becomes a substitute for the Holy Spirit. What's even more subtle and deceptive is when there has perhaps been some program or some person uh, in ministry where you know you can you, you know without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit did show up in that program, in that person's ministry or whatever. And so then that becomes a formula for how the Holy Spirit works. You just repeat the program, right? You just take the outline, follow the template. This is how the Holy Spirit works. And it, it's, a, it's real subtle and deceptive in that way. But that's one of the ways we can quench the Holy Spirit. We, we just sort of smother the fire with people and programs and other resources in place of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then number five, I just added here, uh, we can quench the Holy Spirit by presuming that our actions can get the Holy Spirit to move, as I put in quotes. This is actually sort of related to number four. Um, but I, I've observed this maybe more commonly than maybe than some others have observed or maybe just more commonly than others have noticed, but it's, it's the sort of thing where people think, well, we, we were worshiping this way and the Holy Spirit showed up. And the conclusion becomes downstream of that, that worshiping this way is the way to get the Holy Spirit to move. Uh, for example, I can remember... In sort of my first exposure to, uh, you know, charismatic churches, um, you know, there was one where worship always kind of followed a, a, a pattern. It started out with a fast, loud, upbeat kind of praise song, right? And you would have a few of those chained together, and it would always wind down to something um, quieter and slower, a little bit more reflective. And in this particular church, every week, it would pause, it, right? You get quiet, it would pause, there'd be a silence there. And that's when somebody would give a word in tongues, may or may not be an interpretation. And it was as if, I mean, like I was a teenager, and I'm just observing, like I really don't know anything. But I'm like, there's the Holy Spirit right on cue. He knew his part. He was listening to the music. He was paying attention. And he knew it was time for him to come in. But see, there's an example of something that maybe you're familiar with the same kind of thing. 
that what happens is that we, we've, we've misread uh, our, our history, so to speak, where, where I think if we were to look back, we would see um, the church trying to sort of step away from some of its um, practices and habits and that kind of thing that they knew quenched the Holy Spirit, that they were, they were looking for ways to um, open to the Holy Spirit a bit more. And it was the openness that the Holy Spirit honored, if you will. And it, that became, the openness became uh, mistaken for the form of worship itself. And so it's songs of this sort, it's, uh, it's worship dance, it's flags and banners, it's, uh, it, it, you know, any number of things that are uh, forms of worship that people consciously or unconsciously slip into thinking that this is the way we get the Holy Spirit to move. And I would go as far as to say, as soon as you think that's the case, that's the clue, that's the cue, you need to stop doing it altogether. If, if you think you're moving the Holy Spirit, that is actually closer to magic than it is to worship, and I'm not exaggerating. Magic, magic carries with it the notion that somehow we can manipulate the spirits into doing what it is we want. And I say we, it's not, uh, hopefully none of us want to do magic, but people uh, think that they can, they can essentially manipulate spirits, it's trick them into, trap them into doing what they want to do. And there is, there is certain, uh, there are certain patterns of, of worship and otherwise that have infiltrated the church, especially in the, in the spirit-filled community, that, that approach that kind of posture toward the Holy Spirit. Like, if we do certain things, this is what gets him to act. He is not a genie in a bottle. He is not uh, you know, you, the, in, inside the lamp that you rub, say just the right thing, sing just the right way, or whatever else, and get him to come out. The wind, you remember John 3, the wind blows where it wishes. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to individuals as he wills, and we ought never to forget that. What we do want to remember is that we need to be open. We need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. If we quench Him, if we forbid the exercise of certain gifts, if we neglect the gifts He's given us, if we uh, fail to seek and pray for His presence and power or substitute people in programs and so forth, we're not likely to see Him work. In, in powerful, demonstrable sort of ways among us. But we ought to be cautioned against assuming there are certain forms or formulas that get the Holy Spirit to move according to our will rather than Him moving us according to His. But I'll, I'll conclude, um, again, just by saying the, 
the point here, the exhortation to us, is to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. The work that He wants to do, when He wants to do it, how He wants to do it, assuming that all of that conforms to what He's already said He will do in the Scriptures. If you don't remember that message, it was the uh, second in the series, the Holy Spirit and truth, that He cannot lie, He cannot contradict Himself. What He said uh, already in the Scriptures, He's not going to contradict by doing something um, opposite right now. And so we, we test everything according to the Scriptures. But we open ourselves to everything that He would choose to do within the bounds of Scripture. That God most, might be most glorified in His church and in bringing uh, into His church those people who are His, who belong to Him and don't even know it yet. May He have His way among us. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts better than we even know them ourselves, Lord. We, we want to want to be truly open to the work of your Spirit, Lord. And you know the range of perspectives represented by people sitting here this morning. Some who would be quite eager to see you move in very powerful overt, wondrous sort of ways, and others who would be very, very hesitant, reserved, and restrained. God, we pray that you would teach us how to avoid either of the errors of being overly permissive or overly restrictive, but truly open to the work that you would want to do in our lives individually first and then corporately. So God, I pray that you would search our hearts and show us what you see that would incline us to quench the Spirit in any way Lord, that we might really surrender that to you, surrender ourselves to you, and really open ourselves for you to use us as freely as you wish. And so we pray that you would have your way in our hearts, even now, in Jesus' name, amen.